Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter three, we'll read uh, verses one through six, and next week we'll come back for more and finish up the chapter. Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such confidence, such trust, excuse me, through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We pray simply, Holy Spirit, that you would bring life to your word, that you would bring life to your church, that you would be our teacher and lead us into all truth, just as you've promised. Bless your church. Amen. Amen. Um, last week, uh, finishing up chapter 2, we saw something that, that should give a little bit of context of what he's talking about in these first few verses. Look back at the last verse of chapter 2, 2.17. Paul says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So he mentions that there are some, there are so many who are peddling the word of God. This would be marketing the word of God, the gospel, uh, seeing the gospel as a product by which, you know, Paul or another could enrich themselves if they sell it well. Uh, that's not the way it's supposed to work. That is sometimes the way it works. Uh, since time immemorial, apparently, since the beginning of the church, there have been those who peddle the word of God. The church was a money-making opportunity for some, even in these early stages of Christendom. And this is why we see a reference of letters of commendation, um, it was common practice for traveling missionaries or speakers to, to come bearing letters of commendation, like the one that Paul is referring to in verse 1. These were essentially a set of credentials, the stamp of approval from another church, or from the apostles themselves perhaps. The one bearing the letter of commendation would then be expected to be received by the church. One lacking such credentials would naturally be under some suspicion. Where are you from? Who sent you? In the wild west of the early church, it was not unheard of for there to be con men traveling from church to church, self-identifying as prophets or apostles or whatever, and then taking what they could get. Uh, the earliest church document that we have outside the New Testament is called the Didache. It's a sort of policies and procedures manual for church practice. It's written in the early 100s AD, so very old, and it includes this paragraph of what to do about visiting Christians. It says if they come and they need a place to stay, like they really need a place to stay, that might be fine. But three days is the limit for free housing and then they got to go get a job. That was the early church practice. Now you imagine some events took place in order to, for people to feel the need to write that down and make sure all the churches knew, right? Some people were taking advantage of well-meaning, generous, hospitable people. Um, the, in in the, the Didache, this document, uh, they coined a word 
for the kind of person who was unwilling to work, who just wanted to get the free Christian food, it's translated Christmonger, the freeloader who abuses the generosity of the church. You'll remember that Paul has defended himself against charges like this in 1 Corinthians, reminding the church that he could have taken a paycheck from them. It would have made sense, but he didn't. He supported himself. He got a job. He made tents. It would have been appropriate to be paid for what he did, but he didn't because it wasn't worth the risk of being associated with those Christmongers and have the faith of the Corinthians then weakened. The fact that a word was invented to describe this kind of person shows the, ne the necessity for things like letters of commendation. And we see Paul give out these commendations in other letters. In Romans 16, he writes, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant in the church of Contrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. That's his letter of commendation at the end of Romans 16. He's telling the church, you, you receive her, you assist her, give her whatever she needs. Uh, she's coming to you with my blessing, with my approval. Paul does the same thing for Titus later on in 2 Corinthians. Um, and so now the Corinthians are asking Paul, where are your letters of commendation? Like we need, we need some credentials Paul or Saul, what's your real name? You know, and they're, they're wanting to like, give, give some ID, please, if you're going to you know, have this pull. He's like, I planted this church. You're all here because I led you to the Lord. Like, you're, you are my credentials. That's the argument that he's, he's going to be taking. So the, we don't really have these letters of commendation or things, you know, in, in our churches now, but the creeds of the church confess a belief in the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And we do still believe that true Christianity is connected to the apostles themselves, through their writings in the New Testament. Someone coming and saying they have a new kind of Christianity that is not rooted in the writings of the apostles themselves, that doesn't acknowledge the apostles or their doctrines, is out of line and needs to be rejected. So today the scriptures are what tie us back to the apostles, and using that metric, we can better imagine the situation Paul finds himself in. Let's say Paul comes to a church in the 21st century, and he has some things to say, and we all know it's Paul. We all know it's the Apostle Paul coming. And uh, before he's allowed to teach, he has to prove that he agrees with the book of Romans. Uh, I would imagine an awkward silence would ensue before Paul would say, you know I wrote the book of Romans, right? Um, that's kind of what he's dealing with in Corinth. Of course, it's true that every word the Apostle spoke would need to be measured against the message of the gospel itself. Paul tells the Galatians, if I or an angel of heaven speaks to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. So there was a standard. It wasn't just the personality that was the standard. It was the gospel message once and for all delivered to the saints. But remember, because the New Testament, or sorry, before the New Testament was a book they could open and check out, the standard was the teachings of the apostles in whatever form they had. Paul is an apostle. And he's saying how ridiculous it would be if he needed to show a letter of reference from himself? From another apostle, it's like signing your own check. It feels a little weird, even if it is legal sometimes. Like, it's strange. He, and, and he's saying if it's ridiculous that they would need to show, that he would need to show a letter of reference from an apostle. It's turning everything upside down. You remember, he's been on the defense. That's just the attitude we see in Paul. That's the tone of these letters, which implies that the Corinthians had been somewhat offensive. The question Paul asks, do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or from you, implies that the Corinthians were treating Paul as if he needed proof of his legitimacy. 
And it's not only that they might say Paul needed authorization from outside the Corinthian church, but in asking if he needed letters of commendation from you, it's as if the Corinthians were assuming that any authority Paul would have, that he would have, would have been derived from the Corinthian church itself. He says, you're ours. We send you on mission trips or take you back or let tell you what you can or cannot say. As if they were Paul's spiritual overseers rather than the other way around. This is an upside down leadership structure. Remember again that Paul had lived with the Corinthians for a year and a half, longer than he usually spent with the churches that he ministered with. He planted the church. Uh, he led these people to the Lord. And this may be his fourth letter to them. So the idea that upon his return, he would need to bring officially official introductions is bordering on silly. They're like, Paul? Paul who? We don't know any Paul. It's like, no, like, I invented you. I'm sorry, you don't get to say that. Um, so in, what we're seeing, though, is a rejection of their father in the faith. And Paul is going to show that this is actually a special brand of of legalism, really, and leads to a rejection of the gospel of grace, which we're going to get into in the rest of chapter 3. Come back next week. In distancing themselves from Paul, the church was drifting away from the gospel that he preached, which is, which is why this is so important to Paul. Now, we don't have the apostles. We have the apostles' doctrine in Scripture. The questioning of the apostles or challenging their authority isn't really a thing that we struggle with so much anymore, though every now and then you have someone trying to figure out how Jesus and Paul would have disagreed. You don't need to listen to those people whenever they open their mouths. Um, but questioning Scripture will continue for as long as Satan roams, Satan roams free. The original question that preceded the original sin in the garden is, did God really say? And while we don't have Paul right there to fight with the way the Corinthians did, there will always be those who dismiss the clear testimony of Scripture in favor of a self-made, self-serving doctrine and position themselves over and against the Scripture itself. The Word of God needs no letter of commendation. And in a similar way to how Paul says that the first, or sorry, the real epistle of commendation is the people of God themselves, the church is the letter of commendation for the apostles' doctrine that we have in Scripture. The book has shaped a people. The authority of the Scripture is not derived from the one who teaches it or how it is taught. Rather, we get our identity and any authority we have from the things, the God-breathed words that holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians had come to a place where they were saying, yeah, but do we really have to listen to this apostle anyway? Do we really have to listen to Paul? And this line of questioning has shifted slightly throughout the centuries. It has since become, yeah, but why do I have to do what the Bible says anyway? It's old. Or perhaps maybe with more subtlety, but does the Bible really say? Because there's a lot of different ways you could read this verse. You know where these arguments, these objections lead. Paul's authority he had said in chapter 1, was derived straight from God himself. His authority then is not derived from the church in Corinth. However, Corinth is the validation or the, the seal, the stamp that proves his authority. And if they wanted to see a set of credentials to prove that Paul really was an authority, they need look no further than the church that existed because of his leadership. 
Now, of course, Paul had other qualifications. He has his entire testimony of Jesus meeting him on the road to Damascus. He had received commissioning from Peter and James and other apostles. He had been sent from the church in Antioch. He had all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but he doesn't get into this because he's not playing their games. Now, if we carry this comparison between apostle and apostle's doctrine, scripture, a little further, and here are the objections uh, to the Bible, we could get into the apologetics, the arguments for scripture, but one evidence that may be overlooked is one similar to what Paul uses here. The Bible isn't a book that the church wrote. It is a book that wrote the church. The authority of scripture is, in a way, self-evident, just as the authority of the apostle was self-evident. Without either of them, the church would not exist. It is the existence of the people of God that implies the existence and authority of its builder. When you read verse 2, he says, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. The church is the letter. They want proof that Paul is an authority in the gospel? Okay. Well, who ministered the gospel to them? It was Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul tells the Corinthians that they are the seal of his apostleship. They are not the source of his apostleship, as some of them might claim, but the proof of his apostleship. It's the church he had planted, pastored, cared for. Even though they were rejecting him now, they could not deny the fact that the church existed in Corinth because a guy named Paul went there and preached the gospel to those who had never heard it. He was the founding pastor of the church in Corinth. This letter of commendation, some have said the closest thing that we have now, maybe like ordination uh, churches, ordained pastors. I think that's good. There's biblical precedent for this. I'm not belittling the practice. I am an ordained pastor. There's value in that. But you'd better believe that there are people who are doing the work of a pastor who have not gone through this certain ceremony. And what's probably even more common is that there are people who have been ordained by some governing body who have the certificate, the credentials, and whatever, and for whatever reason are not pastoring a church. So when you consider those scenarios, you see the credentials of the one not doing the work really don't mean a thing. The lack of credentials in the one doing the work probably don't mean much either. What matters is this, is the work getting done? If it is, show me where's the results. The evidence of leadership is the presence of followers. Yes, the letters of commendation that Paul sent were meaningful and good, and ordination is meaningful and good. And Paul could have said, Peter says I could be here. And he's an apostle. He knew Jesus. You know, he could have done that and, and just name dropped and, you know, forced his way in by who he knows or whatever. That's fine. He says, but what's more important is whether or not the church is being built up. And Paul says, your existence as a church is the evidence of my apostleship. Now, this sentence in verse two is a little strange. You probably notice he says that you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Corinth is the letter, but it's a letter that was, is, is read when you see Paul's heart. In other words, if you were able to talk with Paul and see his heart, you would know that Corinth was what kept him praying like he prayed and serving like he served and building the church as he dedicated his life to do. If you sat down with Paul and said, what's on your heart? He would have said Corinth. He would have let you know how deeply he cared for this church, how he loved them, how he was grieved by their sin, 
but how he had hope for their sanctification. And upon having that conversation, anyone with any sort of observational skills would have been able to conclude Paul is clearly a spiritual father to these people. You would be able to read the letter of commendation by seeing Paul's heart. The evidence of Paul's apostleship is is there to be seen, known and read by all men. Any sensible person with eyes to see would be able to tell that Paul is a father to these people. In other words, it's not just that the church exists, but that the church has come into existence in part because of Paul's great love and his broken heart for these people. They are Paul's beloved. That's the letter of commendation. And then we see that Paul's ministry of loving the church is really just Paul imitating Christ. And we're back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In verse 3, he says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. We spent a lot of time on this idea a couple weeks ago in chapter 1. We need to see 2 Corinthians in light of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says to the church, you are our epistle, our message. And then he says, you're really Christ's epistle. You're his message to the world. He can say both of these things. They don't, they don't cancel each other out because he saw himself as a co-laborer with Christ, an imitator of Christ. And as we see Paul as our model and example, we see that the thing that validated Paul's place in the church was his great love for it. The thing that proved Paul to be a servant of the church was his great Christ-like love for the church. And isn't this the example that Christ has given? Think of the upper room. In John 13, verse 12, he says, it says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Christ has said, this is shown you how to do this right. It's washing feet. The apostles were the servants of the servants of God. Paul had served Corinth and his servant's heart, his father's heart proved his Christ-like authority. When Paul shifts from calling the Corinthians his letter to calling them Christ's letter, he is confessing the same truth he spoke at the end of chapter 1 uh, in verse 24. He says, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. He says, I'm not the Lord of your faith. My authority doesn't mean I'm your boss who holds your salvation in my hand. I'm an apostle because God made me an apostle, and what that means is that I serve you for your joy. I'm a guy working for your good. You are my an epistle of Christ ministered by us. And then he says that this letter, which is the church, was not written on tablets of stone, but on the heart. And this brings to mind Jeremiah's prophecy of the coming of the new covenant, where the Lord says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The tablets of stone immediately bring to mind the law, the Ten Commandments written in stone, right? And we know this is where Paul is going to take the discussion in the rest of chapter 3. Come back next week for more. But you'll see, you'll read this chapter and you'll notice that the argument about Paul's authority and his personal defense opens up this greater theological discussion, really, of law versus grace. And that's not so surprising since that's basically Paul's number one absolute favorite thing to talk about whenever you let him. But at first glance, it is a little unusual 
to realize, well, how does he get from there to here? How does he deal about, how does he go from letters of commendation and all of that to the comparison of the Mosaic law and the new covenant? Well, there, there's a couple connections here, and I want you to see them. Number one, Paul is saying that the rejection of his apostleship and the questioning of his heart, really, is like a legalism that returns to law and spurns grace. When we would say things like, well, Paul's not a real, sorry, when they would say things like, well, Paul's not a real apostle, that's an appeal to a sort of law that they place above the apostles' love for them. When they would say, well, we don't have to do the things you say, that's a rejection of one law, but it's also a rigidity that only legalism provides. Think of the legalism that Jesus opposed. People saying, I don't have to honor my parents because I can just give a gift in their name instead. He says, you cancel the law like that. The second connection between the first verses and the rest of the chapter is that rejection of the apostle was actually tied to the old school Jewish legalism. When churches reject the gospel that the apostles were preaching, they turn either to legalism or a libertinism, a licentiousness, where all sin is allowed. Sometimes, as in Corinth, they manage to embrace both, which is impressive. Once again, we see that Paul's emotional state, his strong defensive language, um, is not due only to a personal offense. It's due to the fact that along with rejecting the apostle and questioning his heart, the church was straying from the new covenant itself. When people stray from the word of God, they take the same route. It's a drifting, not just from a book or from a denomination or from, it's a drift from authority into a selfishness that leads up where you're eating pig's food. You think of the prodigal son. From his perspective, perhaps, he's just growing up. He's taking what's his and moving on. But in resisting his father who loves him and leaving the home where he is cared for, it's clear that he's not just growing up. He's not just moving towards maturity. He's regressing, not just from adulthood to childhood, but from the dignity of son to the filth of pigs. He's becoming less than human by moving out of the father's house. But this started by a strong step away from the father who loves him. Paul identifies himself as a father to the Corinthians. And he's calling them back, not so that he can have control, not so he can feel validated, but because he knows that the promises of the new covenant, the spiritual home where they belong, is, is in the place that they're running from. In seeking independence from his apostleship, in rejecting authority, in placing themselves above the apostle, or the revealed word of God, essentially, they are taking the first steps away from grace on a journey that Paul knows ends in a pigsty. And this is the Father's heart, calling back, welcoming back, waiting, inviting those who have made the mistake of believing that freedom from authority is true freedom, inviting them back to the truth. The Father's heart is the heart that knows my ways are best, my rules are for your benefit, and the reason I have them is so that we can have fellowship together, not just so you can be repressed and controlled. Now allow me to draw the comparison again between the personal authority of the apostles in the first century church and the doctrinal authority of the apostles that we maintain in the New Testament. We stand on the word of God and place ourselves under the word of God but there's a long walk of the prodigal that begins just outside the father's house and ends with eating pig food. And it begins with the removal of this authority. 
This is true for individuals. It's true of institutions. When scripture ceases to be taken seriously, the blessings of the new covenant begin to crumble. How long do you think a person can maintain the identity of Christian after they have rejected the scriptures? It's not very long. How long do you think a church can resemble a Christian church after they've rejected the inerrancy of scripture? It can't last. That kind of thing is unmaintainable. For Paul, of course, it's personal. Yes, it's him. These are his friends or people he thought he was friends with who are rejecting him. But it's so much more than personal. The shift he takes from talking about letters of recommendation to the letters of the new covenant written on human heart on the human heart shows the gravity of the situation. He knows that the rejection of apostolic authority leads to a rejection of the gospel itself. And this remains true. The apostolic authority that we have in scripture is rejected at your own peril. To place yourselves, your own spirituality or temperament or reasoning above the authority of Scripture is to begin the walk of the prodigal. What does it look like? It looks like cherry-picking parts of the Bible, certainly. Choosing which pieces apply to you and which ones don't. Uh, Taking the rules about other people's sins very seriously, but thinking you're the exception to the rule where yours are concerned. Uh, It looks like forcing biblical principles through a modern grid with enough force to make the original commandment or encouragement meaningless. People will do this with Paul a lot. Anything he says that they don't like, we just say it was for their culture and not ours. Super easy. That's generally the argument for anyone wanting to veer away from a strict biblical sexual ethic. One man, one woman in marriage, no exceptions. The rejection of this is the prodigal saying they want out of their father's house. And the end is in a pigsty. Caring for the poor. That's another scripture that's, uh, you know, a principle that the scripture takes very clearly, makes very clear. And we all make excuses all day long why we shouldn't do it. Uh, We make excuses about entitlement, culture, or government overreach, or enabling, and suddenly there's no command to obey anymore. It's fine. You don't even have to do it. These are moral issues, not theological ones only. But remember, that was how the Corinthians' problems started, too. First Corinthians showed a church full of moral problems, And now we see that these went hand in hand with issues of authority. And Paul is warning now that the rejection of the apostle, and we would add the apostolic doctrine, results in a rejection of the faith itself. And I said that this rejection of the apostle's doctrine we have in scripture can look like this cherry picking. It can also look like just ignoring the book altogether. Which seems like that may have been some of the Corinthians thing too. Because they're when he's visiting, they're like, oh, do you have a letter of uh, commendation? It's like they're, they're not even recognizing him anymore. They don't even open the book. Consciously rejecting the commandments of God is only marginally better than just leaving them unread and unheard. Your lives will not be shaped by the word of God if your mind is not filled with the word of God. In case it's not clear, this is the part of the service where your pastor is telling you to read your Bibles. What's on the line? What does it matter? This, your access to the blessings of the new covenant and the life that the Spirit gives. Paul writes this in verse 4. He says, And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 6 is really important here. It's the life the Spirit gives that Paul wants the church to have. It's the life of the Spirit that we want to pursue, and we'll get to verse 6 in a second. But first notice Paul's confidence and where it comes from. He says, we have such trust. What trust? That God has written a church. That's his trust. That's his confidence. That the Corinthians are indeed an epistle of Christ. Paul is confident in the spiritual 
supernatural nature of God's people. And this is a confidence through Christ. Because as verse 5 says, neither Paul nor any other person is sufficient in themselves to accomplish the task of building the church. It's a confidence through Christ towards God. A Godward trust, a directional trust. It has momentum, heavenward momentum. I think you would call that hope. He is confident that God, who had begun a good work, would complete it. And again, he readily admits, we are not sufficient for these things. He writes, our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Again, his authority is from God, not the church, not a letter. Now, please remember, Paul's hope is also yours. Paul's heart received from Christ in imitation of Christ is to be our heart. When we say or sing, my hope is built on nothing less, that hope is not just for our destination after we die, but in God's faithfulness in working in each and every one of his children, his whole entire church, no matter her current situation. This also has everything to do with how you and I pursue our callings, and please don't forget we are called. We are all in ministry. We have good works that have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. This sentiment of Paul towards the Corinthians is immensely practical because you are in a ministry that the results of which you are not sufficient for producing by yourself. You are called to things beyond yourself, beyond your abilities, beyond your giftings, but you have been made sufficient only to serve towards his goal by his spirit. Ministers are servants. That's what we are. That's what you are. And like Paul, you and I must recognize that he has given us all we need to do, uh, all we need in order to do his work for us. But the result is entirely his own, and the source of this sufficiency is entirely Christ. Paul trusted in God because he knew God loved the church. He served with confidence that God would finish the good work that he had begun. So with this what this confidence produced, of course, was a spirit-led, spirit-filled ministry that Paul had exemplified in his pastoral care and his missionary work. He identified himself as a minister of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now you'll notice, I'm sure you've noticed, that I've been putting an emphasis on the scripture in this sermon. This is in part to guard against the common misunderstanding of verse 6, where it says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It would be easy to come to the wrong conclusion that the letter here that Paul is talking about is Scripture. And there are even those today that would pit the life of the Spirit against the Bible, which is an unnecessary argument to have. But you need to remember that the letter which that he mentions was the letters carved in stone, which is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant and the Ten Commandments, which represent a way of salvation that is by the works of the law rather than by grace. Let's try to see the continuity here. By rejecting Paul's apostleship and calling into question his loving father's heart, the church has to fill that void somehow. What new authority do they need to invent or revert to? By removing the authority of one thing, they must find authority. They have to serve someone. I think Bruce Springsteen said something about that somewhere. They will reject the authority of the apostles who are saying you are saved by grace through faith. And almost by default, they will then revert to another familiar authority, the old covenant. You're saved by being good enough by hard work and by the best of intentions. This might seem strange to think of the Corinthians as being legalistic. We saw in 1 Corinthians that it seemed they were kind of going the other way. 
but moral degradation goes hand in hand with this kind of legalism. People will say, well, the law never said I couldn't do this, so I guess it's allowed. Well, you've heard people defend one sin or another because, well, Jesus never said anything about that particular 21st century sin that wasn't invented back then. So therefore, I can do it. That argument, which is made only so that people can do or approve what they want without any kind of accountability to Scripture, is based on a kind of legalism. It's a legalism that says, unless it's spelled out verbatim and all the forms are filled out in triplicate, it doesn't count. It is a legalism that wants everything spelled out, what's allowed, what isn't, so that they know how far they can go and still technically be in the club. It's the person in the law-based system that has to look for loopholes. The spirit-led person is free. There's no reason to look for loopholes. The letter kills that kind of letter. The spirit gives life. The letter, the law, shows us to be condemned to our sin, for our sin. The law proves our guilt, and in this way it kills us. By the works of the law, no flesh is justified, Galatians 2.16. How different, then, from the life of the Spirit in which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit in you assures you of your salvation. Rather than giving evidence of guilt, He, the Spirit of God, gives assurance of forgiveness. There is a life of the Spirit that exists as we trust the heart of our Father. There is a freedom that we can live in when we lean into his authority, his ways, even his rules, and acknowledge these are for my good. These are for my best. I have a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. The Lord has good things for you. The skeptical attitude that was towards Paul can still be seen in people having a skeptical attitude towards the Lord, saying, "Are you? is this really the authority? Is your word really the authority? Do you really have my best interest in mind? Can you prove it? the Lord would free you from that heart. The heartfelt pleading we see in Paul is an imitation of Christ's call for you. As Paul tells the church, you are written on my heart. He is echoing our Heavenly Father who said in Isaiah 49, 16, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. We sing this line to our loving Father. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I have a home here. No one can kick me out. I belong with the Father, and this is the house I want to stay in. In that confidence, we can rejoice and stand and pursue our ministry in which we share the heart of our Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you and love you. We love that you have invited us into your family. You have adopted us as sons. You have made a way for us to be part of your home. We ask your blessing on us, on this church. We pray that your word would sink deep into each heart and the seed of your word would bear much fruit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Sent.